Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 22nd, 2022. My guest is author Ian Leslie. This is his third appearance on Econ Talk. He was last here in May 2022 talking about his book, Curious. Our topic for today is being human in the face of artificial intelligence based on a provocative essay of yours at your substack. Ian's substack is The Ruffian. I heartily recommend it. This essay is called The Struggle to Be Human. And welcome back to Econ Talk. It is great to be here. Thank you, Russ. So this piece was that you wrote was provoked by uh, some of the responses that uh, people are getting from chat GPT and, and how human they seem. And it's engendered a lot of um, anxiety about whether humans are going to be replaced even more thoroughly by computers, artificial intelligence, and so on. But you had a very different take. And your take, I think, is the most interesting one I've seen, uh, which is that the real question isn't whether the machines are going to imitate us, but how we are already imitating machines. And how would you how would you introduce that idea? Yeah, so I, I was struck and um, amazed, as so many people were, by just how good ChatGPT's imitations of, of, of being human were. You know, it was doing all these wonderful things. Um, there's, uh, and I was sort of seeing them being passed around on, on, on Twitter. And of course, we're only seeing the really good ones, right? We don't see the, the, the rubbish ones. But even so, that, you know, the really good ones are really good. They're really impressive. Uh, there was one which was, Somebody did a, the silliest ones were the ones that appealed to me naturally. So somebody said, you know, how do you get a, a some peanut butter sandwich out of a VCR recorder? Um, but I want it in um, the style of the King James Bible. And, and you got this beautiful, you know, biblical sounding passage explaining how to do that. Um, another person asked to explain Thomas Schelling's theory of nuclear deterrence, um, but in a sonnet if you please. And, um, you know, they delivered, Jack GPT delivered this wonderfully formed sonnet, Shakespearean sonnet, um, you know, giving a pretty good explanation of of Schelling's deterrence theory, right? So um, many others like this, including some student essays, you know, and I saw people, a few academics saying, wow, I posted this, you know, I I gave it this prompt and the response I got was uh, as good as some of my students. Now, this is where I started to kind of really think about this this question because uh, if you if you follow some of those academics and then you kind of looked further down the thread, they would start to say things like, "But you know what? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily give it a good mark because it sounds a little bit like the kind of response my students give when they don't really know anything about the topic and they're just sort of winging it." Um, and and then you know there were some interesting discussions around that. Um, including one from a guy who t- 
teaches writing and he said, look, um, this, this type of thing is very familiar. That, that the kinds of pieces that GPT writes are the kinds of pieces that students often write and get decent grades for. Um, and, and that's not a coincidence because essentially we've taught them, we taught many of them, that good writing means following a series of rules. Um, and that, you know, um, uh, an essay should have um, five st- part structure, right? So it's, instead of helping them to understand the importance of structure and the many ways you can approach structure and, and the subtleties of that question, um, now we tend to say um, five points. That's what you want to make in, a, in an essay. The student goes, okay, I can follow that rule. Um, instead of helping them to understand what it means to really kind of nail uh, or at least kind of, you know, give your writing depth and and originality and and, and interest, we say, um, you know, here are the kind of five principles you need to, to follow. Here's how long a paragraph should be. You know, here's how long a sentence should be. Um, here's where the prepositions go or, or don't go. Um, and we're basically programming them. You know, we're giving them very kind of simple programs, simple algorithms to follow. And the result is we often get very bland, quite shallow responses back. So it isn't actually any wonder that ChatGPT can then produce these essays because they're basically kind of following a similar process. Is that ChatGPT has huge amount of training data to go on, so it does it much more quickly. Um, and and so we should be alarmed by it, um, but not because. It's uh, on the verge of, of being a kind of super intelligent, you know, uh, consciousness, um, but because of the way that we've trained ourselves to write, you know, algorithmic um, essays. And so I, I thought that was a really interesting discussion. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, actually, the same principle applies to to different industries. Um, you know, I, I listened to music a lot. I'm sure a lot of your your listeners do. Um, and you see this debate playing out in music um, because the the streaming services where a lot of us listen to most of our, our music are very kind of algorithmically driven and they tend to incentivize musicians to create songs and, and, and tracks that, that fit a certain formula because they know that formula works, right? So, so there, there's effectively a kind of set of rules imposed and you either meet that, that standard or you don't. And, and I'm simplifying hugely, of course, but that tends to mean that musicians then write to that algorithm because they know if they don't, then they get, the, they pay a penalty for, you know, because complexity and surprise and, and originality are not necessarily what the algorithm is going to recognize and put to the top of the queue or to put in a playlist. Um, and so you get what, what, um, you know, some people are called the robot aesthetic, you know, everyone kind of writing to a formula. Um, and whatever the trend is now gets absolutely kind of amplified and you go in one direction, you kind of hurt. Yeah, we'll talk about music in some depth because you have a rather extraordinary uh, piece of data in there that blew my mind. Uh, and we'll come to that in a minute. But I think this idea that school education, um, whether it's teaching people how to write or how to respond to various prompts, uh, has, I'll call it an industrial uh, flavor to it. Uh, it. It's not designed to encourage creativity or customization. It's, if anything, the opposite. It's designed as as one CEO complained to me about his HR department. They're really interested in rounding off everyone's edges. <laughs> And he liked people with sharp, jagged 
edges because they were the ones who changed the world and changed uh, the the company, whereas the sort of pretty good standardized one size fits all people that get stamped out by an industrial process, while pleasant, are not going to be the game changers. And I think when we think about the educational process, those, you know, your observations about how writing gets taught uh, in most high schools, at least in America, uh, it's very formulaic. You know, there's a topic sentence and there's this and there's that. And there's a bunch of other rules. You know, I would always try to get my kids to start sentences with and or but. And I was told that that's against the rules. And I tried to explain that it is. But when you break the rules in those really kind of trivial ways, uh, the ear gets a certain effect that it doesn't get if it's the same thing over and over again. Um, or don't repeat the same adjective multiple times in the same sentence without realizing that actually that can create a sonorous poetic effect that has an impact on the ear. So there's a whole bunch of, of style rules like that. Never repeat the same adjective twice within a paragraph. Um, don't start a sentence with a conjunction. I, I make sure there's a topic sentence first. Make sure that a paragraph has four sentences and da, 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 da. make sure the whole essay is six paragraphs. You know, all those things are, you know, it's factory farming. It's factory writing. It's factory conformity. And it's not useless. But I think just if nothing else, one thing I think listeners can take from this conversation, and I promise you there are much more interesting things yet to come. But but if nothing else, one thing you can take out of this conversation is how algorithmic our educational system in many parts of the West have be has become and you know why that is uh, is not unrelated. I think to the incentives that you talk about on Spotify, it's the safe approach. It has a much lower upside. Uh, best of all, it has a very low downside. You're, you're you're okay. You're above the line. You can write a basic essay, and, there, and that's good. By the way, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, basic bland communication is sometimes very much required. But for people who have great talent, whose humanity is uh, and creativity is has the opportunity to really flourish. Uh, you've you're, you're continually rounding off those edges, and I think that is a starting point for how we think about uh, artificial intelligence. Very important. Yeah, because obviously the, the, these this trend, if you like, if that's what it is, has been going on a lot longer. Than, than we, you know, so, so for at least 100 years, we, we've been debating uh, how formulaic, how rule bound education should be and, and comparing schools to, to factories and so on. But what the advance, this kind of t terrifyingly or thrillingly quick advance of AI, however you see it, um, has done is thrown into sharp relief. Um, the, these questions has kind of added a, an urgency to these questions, I think, because what is now very evident that uh, we are making it easier for the machines to imitate us, right? We were almost saying, okay, you're, you're, you're coming this way. Well, we'll come, no, don't worry. We'll come towards you. Don't worry. We'll make ourselves easier to model. We'll make uh, what we do easier to kind of be subject to, to uh, algorithmic imitation. We'll start to imitate you so that you can imitate us better. Now, there's been lots of benefits from this approach, right? You say there are good reasons for the kind of mass scale industrialization of education and, 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 uh, and so on. But uh, it comes at a price. And at some point, maybe the bar can 
you know, maybe, maybe we we come out on the losing side of this bargain. Um, so I think thinking about how to kind of resist its seemingly unstoppable kind of march, it, it just seems more urgent. When you see things like chat GPT, you go, oh gosh, right, okay. So that's where we are now. Yeah. Oh, by the way, just just on on quickly on schools, um, since I wrote that, I, I happened to be in my son's school and I saw on the wall um, a um, how to be kind in seven rules for how to be kind, you know, and what being kind means. And, and you know, it's well-meaning, obviously, but it, 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 again, it's, it sort of reduces kindness to an algorithm. You know, you, you, you follow these seven points. You, 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 you never mean to someone. If you see someone else being mean to someone, you, you, you say something. Uh, if you need to see a, a, go and see a teacher if you need to. All very sensible, but at the same time, it's just this idea that you can just sort of checkbox off kindness and say, well, here, here's the algorithm you need to follow and you'll, you'll, you'll be fine. Just, ah, it doesn't feel like it's completely kind of human. Yeah. And I, I think back to a conversation, um, I can't remember if this ended up on Econ Talk or not, but I was on a, a panel forever ago um, uh, with Megan McArdle, and uh, who's def- I know Megan's been on Econ Talk. I just can't remember if this conversation was an Econ Talk conversation or somewhere else. I think somewhere else. Um, but what Megan pointed out was that as robots and other things get better at skills that humans do now, humans will succeed by their ability to do things that robots can't do. So a human being, uh, it, it could be they'll become a, they will someday be a, a box. You will put your hands into into the box, and it will give you a manicure. Maybe that box exists now. I don't know, but many people go to get a manicure because they want the human connection with another person, and therefore the best manicurists will not be the ones who do the best job on their on your nails, but they'll be the best ones who listen, the best ones who know how to show that they're paying attention and that treat you as a human being. Now, a robot can imitate those things. And we've talked many times on this program whether that's, quote, the same thing or not, whether that robot will have consciousness. I'm a skeptic on that. But but what this, what your observation with respect to, to writing points out in communication is that uh, it, it would be wise for people to not focus on being like everybody else because that will soon have little or no value. It, it has some value 25 years ago. It had some value 25 years ago. It had a lot of value 100 years ago. But 20 years from now, being able to write a unimaginative email will not distinguish you. <laughs> uh, and so that's a bar that you'll need to exceed either with creativity or, or, or other things that are going to go along with it. And I think it has a lot of implications for how we educate our children. Um, and uh, you know what we think about investing in as human beings going forward. Yeah, you know, the, it's it's going to get less and less valuable and more and more perilous to be generic yeah. in any way, right? To be a generic writer or to be a generic person, a, a generic thinker, um, because the machines are very good at, at, at sort of analyzing effectively, you know, a, a kind of average, the, the, the generic model of this form of thought, this form of expression, whatever. Um, there will be a much higher premium on cultivating your own distinctive, unimitable, you know, inimitable voice. 
in whatever form that takes, whether that like, could be literally your voice if you're a singer. You know, if you're a writer, of course, it's very important. I see huge amounts of generic writing out there by, by you know, competent writers. Um, but uh, you, good luck being a generic writer in 5, 10, 20 years. It's going to get much harder. You need to kind of dig deeper and really work out what it is about you, whether it's what you know about that nobody else knows about or what you care about or how you express yourself, whatever it is, your your voice is now really the most valuable thing about you. And to be honest, that's not so easy. I mean, it's nice for us to say so, but... It's hard. Uh, almost by definition, most people are going to be generic. So it, it does <laughs> raise yeah. some... You know, we're, we're, most of it, most of us are very close to average. Uh, so it, it. Oh, I agree. I agree. And and write, writing forces you to confront that like every day because you always kind of your your first draft is always mine is anyway kind of generic, kind of bland. You know, I start, I start, I kind of write what other people are saying, what other people are thinking, and then it's a process of sort of hacking that away and reinventing it until finally you go, okay, well that's sort of a little bit more me and a little bit more different. But yeah, it's, it is hard. I, I the thing is interesting that. Kind of compare. We're talking about musicians and, and other artists because they really struggle with this all the time. You know, Miles Davis. Something he said, which was, "Man, sometimes it takes a long time to sound like yourself." Um, they, they they really confront this struggle head on. But I, I think it's not just artists who are now having to do this. I think lots more of us will have to go. Well, hang on. What does it mean to be myself? How can I be more me? I, I want to turn to music, but before I do, I want to mention one example that I think really makes your point in a pre artificial intelligence uh, era, which is that when I was in the classroom full-time 20 and 30 years ago, I would be asked to write a lot of letters of recommendation, often for economic students or other social science majors who are going to go to law school. And they took my econ class, and they got a good grade, and they wanted me to write a letter for them. And so I'd ask them, I said, I'm happy to do that. Uh, can you give me the essay that you're writing uh, for your application so that I can get to know you a little bit. Um, and they were all the same. And I don't mean similar. They were all the same. They were all about a terrible loss, family loss, a personal, a death, almost always a death. Uh, of The trauma plot. A trauma. A, what'd you call it? The trauma plot. Yeah, the trauma you plot. see it in movies and TV all the time and now in, in real and, life. And so what yeah. these students would do would be about, they would tell a story of a terrible tragedy and how they overcame it. Uh, and the second thing they would write about is how, when they were asked about their goals, they would, you know, it was almost always the same. You know, I want to end world poverty. And sometimes I'd call them in before I wrote the essay, my essay, my recommendation for them, and I'd say, um, I'd say, you know, uh, on, on the save the world thing, the end world pover poverty thing, say, is that really what you plan to do? Oh, no, no, not at all. But they say that's what, you know, helps. And it was obvious to me that there was a book out there. I, I didn't have that book, but that said when you write about a challenge you face, use death. And um, they were all as if written by artificial intelligence. They they had they followed an algorithm, a formulaic approach. Um, and and the the advantage of that again, I think it's important to mention this. Just like we're talking about with uh, ChatGPT, at least in its current formation formula, and it may become more distinctive as going forward. But the advantage of that is you don't mess up. You know, you, you stick to the, you stay inside the guardrails and you got a good chance of getting into law school if you've got other things on your on your resume that look good. When, when I get kids who are struggling, to, I thought they were going to be challenged to get into the law school that they, they were aiming for. I'd say, 
Don't write the essay that everybody else is writing. Take a chance. You're going to get thrown in the garbage. There's no harm to taking a chance. You're a long shot. Write a wild essay. Write something incredibly personal. Write something that's nothing like anything else they're going to see, because then you, you'll stand out. And that's very scary, and most people can't do it. But you know, that, but my point is that your world, your observation is is a long time coming. It, it's a very common phenomenon. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just, it is a long time coming. But yeah, as I say, it's been kind of, Coming down the tracks, really, this this confrontation I think we're having with what it means to be human for a long time. Um, but yeah, I just think that the 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 swiftness with with which AI AI is now able to imitate us is making us go, well, hang on a minute, um, are we really giving up too much of ourselves here um, for for short term benefits? And you know, is there a long term long term cost may be quite a disastrous cost to 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 making ourselves so you know easy to to replicate um but yeah you see you see it everywhere you see the, the same question playing out across so many different domains so let's turn to music because um this really blew me away uh people have known for a long time that a lot of pop <coughs> songs are three chords uh c f and g if, if you're um, playing guitar at home uh, there's sometimes you throw in an A minor in there, and it and it gives a little more um, poignance. But three or four chords are the basis for most uh, successful pop songs. But you have an observation about the way songs are structured, which is shocking to me. Which is about the, a change in key and and the and the bridge in in a song. So talk about for those who aren't musically inclined. Say a little bit about what those are first, and then tell us what. The observation is the the empirical finding. Ah, okay. So, the, the the overall kind of observation is that that pop songs have been getting generally simpler and harmonic, musically simpler, and also lyrically simpler. By the way, which is a point I didn't make in the piece, but you can there's data for that elsewhere. Um, so they've been getting um, simpler and and more kind of predictable, if you like. On average, right? Generally, so you, you, there are always lots of exceptions to this, and um, people always point them out when I make this point. But it's true, you know. The, it, there seems to be a kind of general flattening and, and simpling of, of the structure of, of, of pop songs. Um, now, there's a few kind of bits of evidence for this, but the ones I write about in the piece, which are sort of interesting to me, are um, this amazing kind of piece of a chart um, which shows the decline in key changes in, in pop songs um, over the last sort of 15, 20 years. So a key change, um, if you're, if you're in, a, in, in a song, piece of music, um, it's your kind of um, harmonic um, environment. You kind of feel comfortable when 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 you when you move away from the the home chord, the one you start with. There's a little tug that makes you kind of want to come back to it, and so um, sort of difficult to explain. But you you're kind of feeling uh, you're in a kind of con control, kind of um, harmonic environment. Um, now, so you can change the chords without changing the key. When you change the key, suddenly you kind of move into a slightly different world musically and also a slightly different word, world emotionally because often you, you, there's a kind of change within the song in the singer's perspective um, on what's going on. Um, so one of the examples I give in the, in the piece is um, Every Breath You Take by The Police. Now, 
there's in, in the verse and and kind of I guess the the, the chorus. Um, you, you're in the same key, so he's just he's rolling that riff, do 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 do, do. and and Every he's kind of going to fairly kind of. And and then he kind of goes, oh, can't you see? So and he's kind of changing the chords there, but it's still within the same key. You belong to me, and and it's it's beautiful and it's lovely, but it feels quite um, self-contained. You know, it's a little kind of emotionally self-possessed, and you sense there's some sort of hidden yearning or anger or kind of pain there. Um, and then he switches to a different key in the bridge. The bridge is kind of like, you know, the middle section of, of the pop song. It's neither the verse or the chorus. Uh, and he goes, you know, since you've been gone, so, sorry, I'm not singing it right. Since you've gone, I've been lost without a trace. Do, 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 see your face. And it's like a sort of outpouring of, of, of pain. And, and he's almost kind of being really, really honest for the first time and saying, you know, it's been really, really awful since you've been gone. Um, and that's why I'm, that's why I'm feeling like this. So. It's a good example because you, you, you're seeing both what the bridge can do, kind of give a slightly different perspective on the story of the song, and also the way that musically that the, the the harmonies work with the emotional sentiment of the song, right? So he changes key, which kind of puts you in a different harmonic environment, and he changes his kind of emotional approach. He's much more kind of open and, and direct and passionate at, at that point, and then he kind of returns to the, to the karma um, verse. And it's you know it's one of the many things that make this a great a great song. Uh, I've always thought of the bridge as sort of like a um, a chance to clear your throat. Uh, it's for the speaker of the song to kind of step aside for a moment and maybe deliver yeah. some lines. Change of perspective. Change of perspective. And then and we long, because of the bridge, we long to come back to the chorus or the refrain. But 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 your data is that it's not just that bridges and changes of key, which is what the bridge represented, are less common. They've basically gone to zero among the most popular songs that are recorded these days. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be um, many changes of key left. Um, and certainly the, the, the bridge, I haven't actually seen data on that, but I mean, this, this, you can you can read about that, not just in my piece, you know, the, the bridge has basically kind of disappeared from, from modern pop songs. Um, now, these, these two things don't necessarily go together you can have a key change without a bridge and, and vice versa but generally there's been a decline in both and yeah the, the, the key, key changes are much much less common than they were even kind of 15 20 years ago um and i think that has to be at least partly because of this um writing to the algorithm writing simpler songs that get to the point quicker and then stay there right because that's the other thing short songs are becoming a little bit shorter and they get to the hook or the chorus much more quickly because they know that everybody's you know tr trigger happy and they're about to kind of click on to, to to the next track um and so because of that and because then the 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 streaming services algorithms then respond to that you get this kind of ratchet effect people start writing to it um and you just get this general kind of um uh shortening and, sim and simplification of 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 song structures the other reason for for the 
the way that song structures has become less complex is that people write using Pro Tools or kind of you know, songwriting software where all the kind of instrument, the, the tracks are layered on top of, of one another. And really that's how you start to think as a songwriter. You start to think kind of vertically, like what, what can I layer in here? So you get complexity kind of, um, in terms of the texture, um, uh, kind of, um, layering of the song, but not necessarily in the narrative of the song. You know, where am I going from here? What, how am I telling this story? And really all those things, you know, the bridge or the intro in those kind of old, older songs, key changes within a song, they're all ways of, of, of conveying more complex emotions, you know, so so that um, uh, joy is tinged with a little bit of, of regret um, or anger comes with a little bit of sweetness. Um, another song I talk about a little bit in the, in the piece is No Reply by the Beatles, John Lennon's song, um, where it's a pretty... Um, miserable song about being, uh, ignored and, and kind of betrayed by, by his, his girlfriend. Um, but then in the bridge, it switches, the mood switches. And, and he says, you know, um, if I were you, I'd realize that I, it's a kind of defiant song, but there's also a lot of kind of, um, almost optimism there. It's almost like he's saying to himself, do you know what? I'm pretty good. I'm, 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 you know, I'm worth more than this. And you get that change of perspective you talked about. And the Beatles are very good at that, right? So, so you see an explosion in harmonic complexity after the Beatles arrive in the scene because other bands start doing the same. But that's what's dropped off. And there's less harmonic complexity and therefore I think less emotional complexity. Um, and the person who talked very well about that, that I quote in the piece is Sting. He says, you know, for me, I'm very sad to see the disappearance of the bridge because for me, the bridge is therapy. I thought that was a great, a, a great phrase. Well, my favorite example, I just have to mention this and then we'll move to the actual data for a second, uh, is in the Cole Porter song, Every Time We Say Goodbye. Um, you know, the song starts, Every time we say goodbye, I cry a little. Every time we say goodbye, I die a little. And then it goes... And this is, I think, I think this is the greatest moment in an American popular song. There's no love song finer, but how strange the change from major to minor every time we say goodbye. So it's using the idea of changing the key from major to minor, the happiness of being together, the minor, the sadness of, of parting. But he uses it in the in the melody. It's it's, it's incredible. It's so yeah. great. Yes. But anyway, what you show in the piece is that when the Beatles were in their heyday, about thirty percent of the top one hundred Billboard songs had a had a key change. And today, there were many deck many years of the last ten where it was zero. There was not a single song in the top one hundred with a key change. Right. 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 And, and, and it's interesting because you can see it, uh, kind of goes up and down a bit over the last 30, 40 years, but and you can almost kind of trace what's happening in, in pop music, you know, so it goes up after 1963, you know, ish as, as the Beatles kind of arrive in the scene and, and everyone goes, Oh, right. So we could write more kind of interesting pop pop songs, right? Um, and then it kind of uh, fluctuates a bit, goes down when punk arrives, you know, everybody starts to kind of thrashing things and saying, let's, let's get back to basics here. Um, and, uh, and actually at the end of the nineties, the early two thousands, it's, there's, there's a kind of peak there because song, you know, Nirvana were, were writing very kind of complex pop songs. So, so, uh, uh, Radiohead, obviously. 
Um, but yeah, in the in the two thousands, it really starts to trail off and go down um, uh, almost to zero. And and yeah, I think what you the cost of that is you're seeing a less kind of um, musical harmonic innovation, and you're also and this is the point Sting was making in in his interview. You're seeing a kind of narrowing, narrowing or flattening of, of emotional effect, effect as well. He, as, as he was saying, you know, the reason he said the bridge is therapy, he meant, you know, these songs, they kind of go round and round and they kind of really catch and you get into them and then they fit into the next one and all they, they kind of roll into the next track on the playlist, but they don't show me a way out. Um, it's almost like a kind of thought in somebody's head that's going round and round and round and it's kind of causing anxiety without kind of finding um, relief. And the bridge for him, you know, musically, he said, that's what it used to do. It used to kind of give me this different perspective within the song and make me feel there's kind of there's hope or, or there's a different point of view going on. And you do point out there are exceptions even today, of course. Uh, you know, what, what, you're, what you're saying, and let me try to put a positive spin on it. You may not agree with this. Uh, so we finally figured out what people like. And we're giving it to them. Uh, you know, what they like is simple. They don't like all that complexity. They don't want the key change. They don't want the uh, multiple thoughts in one song idea. They want one thing, and it could just be a good beat. Uh, you know, it's um, just good techno pop, or it's good hip hop, or it's just it's great to dance to. And I don't need all that other stuff. And so the top 100 don't have that. And yet, out in the right hand tail, there's still plenty of creative people doing creative things because of technology and distribution the way it's set up now there there are songs on spotify that are fabulously creative you just they don't get put in your algorithm very often and you got to make it hard it's harder for people to find them there are i mean but if you care about the 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 emo the quality of of our pop of our mass culture you know the the, the yes the, there are there are all you know endless niches and we can always find what we're looking for, we can find incredible complexity in, and, and, and intelligence and variety out, out there, right? It seems huge amount, more than ever in terms of, you know, just sheer volume. But if you're looking at the, the mass and, and, and the average and you say, well, the, the average quality of, of our kind of popular so songs is, well, if not gone down, it's, it's become kind of simpler and, and um, less emotionally complex. Well, I think that is a legitimate thing to worry about. I, I'm not kind of, I don't want to be someone who's saying, you know, everything's rubbish out there. <laughs> it's not true. Um, and lots of the songs that I'm talking about, the very kind of simple ones that get to the chorus quickly and don't change key are incredibly good songs, right? Right, Incredibly catchy yep. songs and brilliantly kind of orchestrated and, and produced. Uh, so I don't want to underrate the skill that's involved in doing that. I'm just pointing out that um, there's been this overall decline in, in complexity and therefore, uh, you know, em emotional complexity as well as uh, musical complexity. And that reflects what's going on in the way we consume our music and that's related to... To, to, to the machines and, and the way we, we, we kind of respond to them. Um, so yeah, I, 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 the thing is, you know, we can give people what we want, but as you know, as an economist and as anybody who's worked in marketing or consumer goods knows, you give people what they want until they don't want it anymore. Because actually people don't know what they want. Suddenly they find another thing that they want. And, and, and so, um, it can get stale. And I don't think it's overall good for the music industry for, to be so formulaic, because I, I think people will will find other ways to find the the surprise and the originality and the innovation that that, that they ultimately want. Well, let's let's go to movies, which was your next observation. 
you start off by making the point, which I think is, um, again, quite profound, that through most of the history of the industry, there was a great deal of uncertainty about what would succeed and what would not succeed. Um, movies that were thought to be you know, unlikely to make it turned out to be blockbusters. Movies that everyone was sure would be a huge hit failed and flopped. But that formula has gotten a little simpler and clearer right now. Yeah, so the, there's that famous maxim from William Goldman who said, nobody knows anything in, in, in Hollywood, right? Um, and that's just not true anymore, and which is not necessarily a good thing. The, the studios essentially know th- that putting your money behind the next installment of a franchise that, that uh, viewers are, are familiar with is a much, much better bet than coming up with a new idea. Um, the studios know that if they bet on intellectual property that already has some sort of reach and and, and is sort of lo- already lodged in in the minds of of the public, um, then people find it much easier to get their heads around and they, and they come to the cinema. Um, and the the top the, the top movies are absolutely dominated more than ever before by franchises, and in particular, of course, by Marvel um, um, and this kind of cinematic universes, which, again, I want to to, to say, <laughs> to, to caveat to my more general point, which is, you know, many of them are brilliantly made, incredibly skillfully produced, acted, directed, technology is incredible. Um, these are not kind of, you know, it's not rubbish, um, but it's not doing what cinema... Did in the 1970s and 80s and and, and 90s, um, which is show I think a much richer span of human experience. Whether that's you know, you know f- falling in love or, or out, out of love, and um, you know the, Martin Scorsese talked about this a, a few years ago, and he kind of made what I think were pretty mild comments about how okay Marvel's fine, but it's not really kind of doing what I want He's cinema a to do, which person, is. Ian. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't like Spider Man. He's bad. Yeah, he's he's bad, and all you know, he's out of touch, and he's looking backwards. And people make these furious defenses of Marvel. I mean, Marvel and DC—they can look after themselves. You know, Um, they're they're going to go on being huge kind of juggernaut entertainment. So um, I actually think uh, he's he's clearly right. I mean. you know the, the 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 biggest the best movies. You know, if you look at the Godfather, or you know, a blockbuster, um, very successful, and this incredible searching examination of 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 human nature. Um, I, I I just think it's ridiculous to argue that that um, the 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 Avengers movie has that depth of of understanding of of, of humanity and that it's it's communing with us in 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 quite the same way. Yeah, I think I recently mentioned on the program how much I enjoyed Top Gun Maverick. I loved it. I loved right. Top, Top so Gun Maverick. It, it, I watched it on an airplane on my phone, uh, which has got to be the least cinematic way to watch. I mean, it's a movie designed for IMAX, and yet yeah. I found it so remarkably entertaining. Uh, but that's all it is. It's just entertaining. It, it's formulaic to the point of absurdity, and it is utterly delightful. And I, I think of these – I'm going to let my inner snob come out for a minute. I'm not a – I'm not into censorship, or I don't think we ought to be subsidizing artistic movies or anything. But, but I do think your point that, uh, to me, great art is about the human heart in conflict with itself, which is a line of Faulkner's. Mm. 
And that's not what is successful in our popular culture these days. Uh, what's popular is escape. And escape is great. I, I love it. I, I consume it myself. Uh, nothing wrong with it. Um, it doesn't test you. It doesn't make you think. It doesn't cause you to examine what you're doing with your life. It's just two hours of escape. It's very pleasant. And sometimes that's all you want. But that's all you get. It's a little sad because there are exactly there are great exactly. Uh, opportunities out there. And you could argue that, well, you know, Hollywood is is doing this. There are these incredible, you know, miniseries on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, etc. Uh, I would just point to The Bear on Hulu, which I think is, if it if it doesn't go beyond the first season, it's a masterpiece. I loved the eight yes. the eight episodes. It's ex- extraordinary. Uh, there is great storytelling still going on that is about um, the kind of things we're talking about to be what it is to be human. But it is fascinating yes. that by far the most successful popular uh, entertainments of both music and movies are there's nothing challenging about it. And I don't mean challenging in the avant-garde sense that I had no idea what was going on in that movie or I couldn't figure out that artwork. I'm just saying they make they quite make you question. They raise the ideas in your head. These other movies are just yeah. bliss. They're like taking drugs. They're like drinking. They're, they're love, which is sometimes fun. We all know that. Uh, yeah. Escape is fun. But I keep thinking of Soma and Brave New World. You know, it's like, here, take this. Go for two hours over here and just sit down in your corner with your screen and you'll you'll be okay. And that's it. There's something sad about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they, they, they are, by definition, generic. I mean, they created their own, you know, they have their own genre. They have their own universe. But that, that everything is within... You're following a very complex, but but a, a set of rules, you know, a complex formula for for making a, a hit movie. Um, and like you say, um, sometimes that's what you want. But if that's all you get, uh, that's I think that leads to a kind of narrowing and, and a thinning of, of of the texture of of your life and our, our lives. Um, yeah, on movies, um, uh, part of one of the inspirations for my piece was another article, recent article, but in the Atlantic by Derek Thompson, where he talked about it as the moneyballization of 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 Hollywood. Um, you know, Moneyball was about baseball. And actually, he starts off discussing baseball, a discussion which I sort of went over my head a bit because um, I don't know much about baseball. But essentially, he was arguing that actually baseball has got more boring, I think, um, with the rise of analytics sure. and, and, and to, to, to evaluate and, and, and run tactics and so on. Um, and that essentially, you know, the same thing, you know, data analytics are now much more influential in in. in Hollywood, uh, you know, in terms of working out what we're going to make and and also how we're going to make it, you know, who we're going to cast and and so on. Um, and you can see there are huge advantages of that and huge efficiencies to be made. But at the same time, there is there is a cost to be paid, and I think it's fine. You know, we should point that out. There's a cost to be made in terms of unpredictability. The data will always always tell you what worked. It actually can't tell you always what will work, what might work. Um, and so, yeah, th- th- there is a cost to be paid in terms of predictability and, and lack of surprise and, and lack of formula. And I think a kind of lack of emotional or spiritual depth. Yeah, before I forget, I want to put in a, a plug for William Goldman, who you mentioned earlier. He is the uh, screenwriter of The Princess Bride. Uh, he's the screenwriter of uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and other successful movies, and he wrote a memoir about that experience uh, called Adventures in the Screen Trade, and I think that's the name of it. I will put a link up to it. It is a magnificent, if you're interested in movies at all, you will enjoy it tremendously. I happened to stumble on another book he wrote called The Season, 
where he attended, I think, every Broadway play and musical that opened for a year in a particular a single year of Hollywood, uh, excuse me, of Broadway. And uh, many of those plays and musicals have been lost in the miasmas of time. But uh, he's still incredibly fun to read. He's such a thoughtful and interesting uh, writer. And yeah. um, very, very, he has a second, another memoir, which I didn't, I don't think I've, I don't think I've read, but I just want to recommend him. He's, um, he writes very thoughtfully yeah. on these subjects. Yeah. Adventures in the Screen Trade, I know, is, is a, is a great book. Yeah. yeah terrific. So, okay. So here are these, these two old guys. I'm older than you, but I'm pretty tough. <laughs> but here are these two old guys complaining yeah. about popular culture. And, you know, we're trying, I, I take your piece is not a, a, a tirade against popular culture at all. It's a or a screed. It's a um, it's a thoughtful observation about how uh, algorithms summarize where we are in the conversation. Algorithms have taken some of the uncertainty out of both uh, the two most popular forms of popular entertainment: music and 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 movies. And as a result, there's a certain sameness. Uh, and a certain formulaic aspect to them. And, you know, we could debate, as we kind of hinted at here, was whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm, I don't want to, I'm a real, I'm a big snob, but, you know, so I, I, I think Top Gun Maverick's a horrible movie, but I will admit I enjoyed it. <laughs> so <laughs> is there anything else to say here? I mean, it, other than to make the observation that, uh, Chat GPT writes a pretty good uh, movie plot. Uh, I've seen a few of those on on Twitter already. And uh, if we all get accustomed to watching certain kinds of formulaic movies, human beings won't be very necessary for writing those. Uh, you know, they're um, in fact, you know, some of the best lines of um, of Top Gun Maverick, for example, "Don't give me that look. It's the only look I've got." You know those kind of lines. It's fun, and and to see you know Tom Cruise deliver it is is always entertaining, uh, even if he looks somewhat uh, formulaic himself. He's undergone some algorithms to keep himself looking young and pristine. Um, is is there anything you know? So what? Okay, so so there'll be fewer human beings writing movies because AI will be able to write the movies. They'll be able to write the dialogue. They'll even be able to figure out ways to surprise us because they'll learn how to do that. And should we bemoan this really? Is this um, – unless you're planning to be a screenwriter, there's a lesson here for sure. Um, is there anything else to say? Well, I, I, only what I've already said, which is um, if, if you think it's – if you're relaxed about the fact that movies are becoming essentially less human – um, you know, uh, there's kind of less of the richness and complexity of the human experience captured um, in our in our popular entertainment. If you're okay with that, then then that's fine. I'm I'm not so much. Um, I would rather it. I, I would rather popular entertainment was as rich and satisfying and complex um, as we know it can be at its very best, and, and sometimes still still is, but certainly has been over the last sort of fifty years, right? In music and the and, and the movies. Um, and I I think the kind of um, inevitability argument. There's always this kind of sense of ah, but it's just the way things are going. There's no point. Yeah. Is a bit kind of actually it's naive and and it's sort of it's illogical. It doesn't make sense, you know. The, 
and it sort of takes out our agency, our human agency, where we go, well, hang on a minute. We, it's up to us here. We don't have to just sort of roll down and, and, and you know, roll over and let this happen. Um, the, other, the other kind of, I don't know if you kind of, how much you want to get into this, but the other area I look at briefly in, in, in my piece was politics and that kind of public discourse and the way, the way that even there you can see a kind of, um, roboticized mode of discourse, particularly on social media, of course. Um, and you, you, you know, I just look at people on Twitter. I'm like, a bot could very easily imitate you. <laughs> Sometimes you'll see a controversial post and you'll look at all the reactions to it and the people are all saying the same thing. Um, and sometimes the point they're making is, is a perfectly good one, but it's just remarkable how everybody responds with the same point, often using the same phrase, um, the same words. And, and again, I'm just struck by the fact that it's not necessarily that bots are getting so much better at imitating us. It's just that the first thing that's happening is that we're becoming more, more bot-like. We're kind of making it easier for them. Um, and sometimes on, on Twitter and in our political discourse more generally, I do feel like we're becoming more binary, more, more algorithmic, more kind of everybody has to fit into this box or the other. Otherwise the system just doesn't understand you. Yeah. I think it's worth thinking about. The deeper question, what it means to be a human being, I, I think about my uh, conversations on WhatsApp with my wife, say, or family members. I have certain uh, icons, emoticons I like to use in response to things that they post. And I'm sure after a while, people know what I'm, my, my kids and my wife know what I'm going to respond with. They could do it for me. And hey, I could get a, a bot to respond for me. So I wouldn't even have to read those posts from my kids and wife. I could just be happy putting my thumbs up or my little party happiness or my little happy face with the three hearts. And, and, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think I, it's great. I point. think if we're not yeah. careful and I think, you know, I love WhatsApp, by the way, I think it's an extraordinarily nice way to interact quickly and with a little bit of emotion with, with the people I love and can't be with every minute of the day. But if that's all we are, uh, it starts to remind me of the Nozick uh, experience machine where you, know, you hook yourself up to a machine and you experience what feels like reality, that you're doing whatever you pre-program it to do. You can pre-program it to become a great rock star or you cure cancer or you become president or you win a Nobel Prize. Whatever dream is you win uh, the World Cup uh, representing Argentina wearing number 10. Uh, and you experience all the emotions of those experiences, but they're not real. But you can't tell that. You, you, they feel real to you. And similarly, you know, I could WhatsApp back and forth with my wife for 10 years or my kids, and perhaps they're just using a bot and not really reading what I say, and it feels real. And, you know, you could argue that's that's okay. But I think deep down we all know it's not okay. Uh, that it's not okay. Would. <laughs> it's not okay, though, it's is not. it? Yeah, um, it's and, not what I, I mean. Who but, we are? But I, I, I don't want to sound too kind of um, doleful about it um, because <clears throat> I'm not. I, I see it as more like a kind of a bracing challenge to us. Right. And, and it, it, it's, it's great. You, you've taken it right down to the level of our kind of everyday lives. And I think that's exactly right. You know, when you, you get an email from somebody 
and maybe it's a lovely, very human email from a nice person. And at the bottom, you get a series of options from Gmail <laughs> saying, do you want to say, great job. Me too. <laughs> or whatever it is. Me too. And it's like, okay. And now the interesting thing about that kind of thing is like, maybe you were just about to reply with something equally generic. So maybe you want to think twice about that and be a little bit more, put a bit more thought into it and be a bit more human. Um, and so I, that's the way I kind of see this whole, this whole question really, not as in, oh, it's terrible. You know, we're all, we get all, we're, we're so boring and we might as well just outsource everything to the machines. I, I see it as, as, as the, these brilliant machines, kind of, you know, brilliant technology, throwing the question back to us, going, okay, so what have you got? You know, you do better. Um, it should be a raising of the bar. They're raising the bar for us and, and, and vice versa. We, by, by being more human, we make it more difficult for them to imitate us. So, so we, we raise the bar for them. Um, and that's a more kind of virtuous loop than I th the one that I think we're in right now. Yeah, it's a fascinating um, thing to think about, though, which I had not until this moment. Uh, somebody sent me recently a, a Kane's Hack rap video written by ChatGPT. Uh, so John Popola and I wrote, quote, the real one uh, about a decade ago, a couple of them. And... Of course, the more of those we write and the cleverer they are and the more human they are, the more material AI has to rip us off. <laughs> you know, so the, the version they sent, somebody sent me or posted on Twitter is like, it's pretty good. It looks like they stole a couple lines. <laughs> they have literally stolen uh, a couple of themes from yeah. us. Um, and the part I think we have to confront is that I didn't think that would happen in my lifetime. I didn't think there would be poetry or song lyrics or anything remotely as clever as what I'm seeing in this incredibly embryonic phase of this revolution. And as we try to match them and outdo them, they do learn from us um, and they will get better. And that raises the bar even uh, higher. And I, I think the more important point now, if I think about, you know, I, I write, I've written many poems for my wife on her birthday or on Mother's Day, or my dad used to, when we'd come visit him, he'd post, he'd write dozens of poems and put them all around the house for us, for each kid and, and our kids. Aww. And uh, they were lovely and they moved us. And if, if you, if you, if you told me, oh yeah, well, actually he paid somebody to write them for him or he yeah. outsourced it to a artificial intelligence agent. I would be sad. They might be better, yeah. but they would not be his. Yeah. And to yeah. me, it's not so much that these technologies challenge us to be cleverer or more innovative. It's they remind us that they want – we want reality. I want your – uh, I think you're not an avatar. I think you're actually Ian Leslie. I read your essay. I think you wrote it yourself. But if you said to me, uh, actually, you know, I didn't write that essay. I asked a chat GPT to write up an essay on the implications of chat GPT for music. And and um, it was so clever. It came up with this thing I wrote. And I might praise you. You might get honor and glory for it, even though it was written by a machine. But it wouldn't be you. And for me, a lot of what 
this is telling me, what I'm taking away from this conversation and your essay is not so much we have to be better than the machines, just have to be us. Um, I think authenticity is, it's going to be harder and harder to tell what's authentic. And that to me means that a lot of these kind of back and forths will not be as emotionally powerful as they used to be because we'll assume correctly that many of them were not written by a human being. They're written by a, a robot, some kind of AI. And so to me, it's going to put more of a premium for us having to have a drink together. And that's okay. I think that's going to be, uh, I think it's reminding us that that is what really matters. Not how clever our words, not how creative, but they're ours. Beautifully put, and I, I, I really couldn't put it put it any better. And I think you're, it's it's as you say, it's it's not about being better. It's about yeah, how can we be more us? How can we be more human? And really, my essay is just a call for us to actually, you know, once again return to that question. It's been asked for a long time, um, but in the light of what's happening now, yeah, I, I think we need to ask it with with more, more, more urgency than than ever before. My guest today is Ian Leslie. His substack is The Ruffian. And thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.